You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is In the Stream of Time, Episode 3, with Walter Feit. Today we're going to speak about the law. You know, there's so much confusion about God's law in the world out there, and people don't really know how to handle the situation, because some people say the law is binding, others say the law is not binding. We are under the law, we are not under the law. What is the real issue? And does it really matter? Well, the Bible says, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Psalms 119, verse 126. So referring to his law, and this is, of course, in its greater capacity, the Torah, the whole word, but also the law of God, which is contained therein. We violate the law of God. Isaiah chapter 24 verse 5 says, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, that's quite an amazing statement. Can one change God's law? Can one change his ordinances? Can one break the everlasting covenant? In the previous lecture, we learned about the little horn power that the reformers had identified as the Roman church, the papacy. And one of the criteria was that it would think to change times and laws. And we saw that it was a blasphemous power. And so we have to look at this and see whether this is really so or whether it is not. So let's ask them to explain themselves on this issue. And these are Roman Catholic references. The Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. Now, that's quite an astonishing statement. Can one change God's law, get rid of it, and change the precepts of Christ? Another reference says he can pronounce sentences and judgments in contradiction to the rights of nations, to the law of God and man. He can free himself from the commands of the apostles, he being their superior, and from the rules of the Old Testament. This seems to me like quite an arrogant statement. The Pope's will stands for reason. He can dispense above the law and of wrong make right by correcting and changing laws. Now, if this were just to apply to secular laws, then that would be one thing. But when it applies to God's law, then this is a very serious matter because then there's a power that claims to be higher even than God. So why is it based on reason and what is the theology behind that? Second Thessalonians 2, 3 let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now we looked at this in the previous lecture and we saw that this wording is used for Judas and for the Antichrist, son of perdition, the one who pretends to be a follower of Christ but in actual fact is a deceiver. 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, if, if a power assumes an authority where it can change God's authority and his law, well, then we have a serious problem. Now, what is sin? Because he's called the man of sin. 1 John 3 verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That's the only definition there is in the Bible. So let us see if he really changed God's law. And for that, we have to go to the Bible and the Catholic Catechism. So we'll look at the official Catholic Catechism and the Bible, and we'll go through the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in the Catechism, it is shortened somewhat, and it reads, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. Now, what has been removed, and is it important? Well, the portion that's gone is, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, now why is this important? Why should that stay in the original? You see, in the commandment, there is a definite description of the deity that is involved in this law. It is that God which brought the Israelites out of Egypt. In the Catechism, the God becomes generic because it could be any God. So it's a generic God. The specificity has been removed and we want to know why this is important. Now, when it comes to the second commandment, the Bible says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, is God vindictive in this commandment in that he visits the iniquity unto the third and fourth generation? God is not vindictive. The Bible says he does not tempt anyone and the iniquity of fathers may not be transferred to children and vice versa. That is very clear in the Old Testament. So in what sense is this carried over from generation to generation? Now, in the first lecture we did, we looked at the science of epigenetics and we saw that character traits are even transferred from one generation to another and can cling to individuals for three or four or even more generations. So, bad habits run in families. And if they are not curtailed and counteracted, well, then they will have their effect for that period of time. But nevertheless, we're not to make a graven image, not to bow down to it, and not to worship it. Now, in the Catechism, this commandment has been removed. Now, that's very strange. Can you just remove a commandment? Of course, now they only have nine commandments. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, 
that taketh his name in vain. In the Catechism it reads, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So what has been removed is the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now we've already seen that the commandments have been changed. The second one has been removed. Some portions are being eradicated. So in actual fact, this is a new law where certain things have been removed and certain things have been, well, worded differently. So we have to think about that. Why is this portion removed? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Well, let's take worldly governments. Let's say you have a government and the government has a set of rules and a set of laws and statutes and then there is a coup and a new government takes over or by other means a new government takes over. Then the authority has been shifted from the old government to the new government and the new government will now decide what is law and what is not law. So it can take the old law statutes and go through them and say this law we will keep, this law we will eradicate, these laws here deal with matters of property etc. We'll keep those, this one here we'll remove. And they change the law. Now who is the new authority regarding the law even though there are principles of the old law which are transferred to the new government. Do you understand the point? So in other words, there's a new lawgiver. Now the question is, can the old lawgiver still admonish or pass sentence on someone who transgresses? Yes or no? Obviously not, because there's a new lawgiver. So in this case, in the third commandment, it says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, Here's an admonition from the first lawgiver. But there's a new lawgiver who has changed the law, therefore that has to go, because it's a question of authority. The law does not now rest under the authority of the first lawgiver, but now rests under the authority of the second lawgiver. So it's very important that that has been removed. Now the fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, not your son, not your daughter, not your manservant, your maidservant, your cattle, or the stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now if you look at the Catechism, it says remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Is that just an abbreviation? What has been removed? Well, most of the commandment is gone. The very reason why the law was given is gone. For in six days, God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And something else has also been reworded. The Sabbath day has been changed to the Lord's day. All right. So the Sabbath was given as a rest in the completed work that God had made and it was given and it was told the people that they must keep the law because he had rested on the seventh day. So it's a rest in God's completed work. Now here 
is a new law which says remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Now does it have the same intent? We have to go to the catechisms to find out if the intention of this law by the Roman Catholic Church is the same as the intention of the fourth commandment. Of course they're one behind because they removed the second one, so it's their third law. This is Father Maguire's New Baltimore Catechism and Mass of 1949. And uh, it bears the impromptu of Francis Cardinal Spellman, so that was the head knight of Malta in New York in the United States. And it's interesting because it reads some, the following. What is the third commandment of God? Actually, it's the fourth, remember, but it, in their catechism it's the third. The third commandment of God is, remember that keep holy the Lord's day. Why does the church command us to keep Sunday as the Lord's day? The church commands us to keep Sunday as the Lord's day because on Sunday Christ rose from the dead and on Sunday the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles. Now, the Bible says, remember the, the Sabbath days. Six days shalt you labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. So they've shifted the solemnity of the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Now, what are we commanded by the third commandment? By the third commandment, we are commanded to worship God in a special manner on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Interesting. In what manner? How does the church command us to worship God on Sunday? The church commands us to worship God on Sunday by assisting at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So this is a totally new commandment. It's not in the Scriptures. The seventh day that was to be held was in commemoration of our origin, where we came from, creation. And we were to rest in the completed work of God. And here we are to assist in the sacrifice of the Mass, and according to Catholic theology, this is a perpetual sacrifice which is repeated over and over again as often as the Mass is said. But the Bible said Christ was offered once for all. So this is a totally new commandment, has nothing to do with Scripture, and therefore must be based solely on the authority of the new lawgiver and not on the Bible. Now the fifth commandment says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that the Lord, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And the fourth commandment, one behind again, Honor thy your father and your mother. So what has been removed is again the promise, that thy days may be long, and etc. So the promise attached to it can no longer be there, because the old lawgiver doesn't have the authority if there's a new lawgiver. So the promise is gone because there's a new lawgiver. The sixth commandment is the same as their fifth, thou shalt not kill. Seventh is the same, thou shalt not commit adultery as their sixth. And their eighth is the same, thou shalt not steal. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor is their eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against the neighbor. But it looks kind of silly to have nine commandments. So they've split the tenth commandment into two so that they get ten again. Now the tenth commandment reads, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, 
his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. They've split it into two. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, and you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. But there are a couple of things missing. And what are they? Well, the house is gone, and the manservant is gone, and the maidservant is gone, and the ox is gone, and the ass is gone. Now we'll see why in a moment. Very interesting. So certain things are still there, but others have been removed. Now according to the Tenth Commandment in the Bible, every person under God is entitled to a house, is entitled to a marriage partner, is entitled to workers who work for him, whether male or female, is entitled to the implements necessary for his work, plowing, etc., and is entitled to transport, according to the commandment. But some of these have been removed in the ninth and 10th commandment of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, let's have a look at how this affects modern times. If we go back to the time of the French Revolution, when human rights were touted as the new means of morality for the world, they brought out the original Human Rights Declaration in this form. Now surely everyone can see that this is in the form of Ten Commandments. And there are some other structures involved in this declaration. And the great thinkers behind this humanistic way of thinking were Voltaire and others who were Jesuits. So this again has the finger of Rome attached to the change. Now if we take a closer look, we'll see there's a bundle of rods in the middle, and there's a spear through them, and there's a little hat over there, so let's enlarge it. It looks like this, and there's a serpent with a tail in the mouth above it. Now the bundle of rods that you see there is a fasciae, and a fasciae is a bundle of rods around a central staff, because in Roman times, when the Roman leader put his staff on the capital, all the nations added their staffs around it and they were tied together. So it is a unity of nations around the central power. That is what it stands for. But the little hat on top was the Phrygian hat, which can be traced back all the way to Babylon, by the way. And above that, the serpent with the tail in the mouth, the eternal serpent, the life-giving serpent. Now this does not sound very biblical, and I'm interested in this little hat over here. And if we go to the British Museum, we'll see that this is the hat that the god Mitra wore. So this is Mitraism. And uh, if we look at the system that the Romans had, they practiced Mitraism. And the Roman Catholic Church has taken the structure of Mitraism into its own system. So this is the worship of another deity. Now, if we go to John Robbins's uh, expose on this issue, he says, under fascism, this fasci, property owners may keep their property titles and deeds, but the use of their property, as Pope Leo wrote, is common. So fascism is a form of socialism that retains the forms and trappings of capitalism, but not its substance. 
Under fascism, property titles and deeds are intact, but the institution of private property has disappeared. Government regulations and mandates have replaced it. For this distinction between legal ownership and actual use, the fascists owe a debt to the Roman church state. Now, fascism has a, a bad reputation because it's associated with, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler and the whole idea of one suppressing another, etc., and the military aspects that go along with it. But that's not really fascism, that's just an outflow of the idea. Fascism is government and industry in partnership for community. That's the definition of fascism. Government and industry in partnership for community. Now, under capitalism, government and industry are separate. Under communism, they belong to the state. Everything belongs to the state. So under fascism, you have a compromise between the two. In other words, the state doesn't own the industry, but the state is in partnership with industry for the sake of the community. And uh, since 1992, virtually the whole world has a fascist system of government. Because in 1992, there was a massive bailout of the banking system and the industrial world that was apparently failing. And uh, government did not uh, give them a loan to bail them out. Government bought into the system, so they went into partnership supposedly to save the system from collapse, so for community, for the community. And so everyone is locked into this system since that time period. And that's a very interesting point. Now if you go back in history, the goddess of reason was enthroned in the French Revolution. And we saw the statement by the papacy that the Pope's will stands for reason. Now Jesuits use rationalism to support the idea of the governmental system which they would see, well, which they would like to see in this world. And if you go to official Jesuit sources, they say, that fascism is the form of government which best suits the Roman Catholic ideal of social justice. So reason, your own reason, is the basis for changing God's precepts. Now, of course, since that time, human rights have greatly expanded. And after the Great Wars, the First and Second World War, 1948 to 1998, there was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and every nation in the world is to become subject to this declaration. Now, the United Nations is supposed to be the one who oversees this process and makes sure that human rights are introduced all over the world. Now, in 2008, Pope Benedict went to the United Nations, and here he is seen, uh, addressing the United Nations, and he made some interesting statements. He is brought in by the still current uh, Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, and he said the following, Respect for human rights was the key to solving many of the world's problems. 
He also said that they must be based on multilateral consensus, which means that every nation must have the same ideals, the same way of acting and thinking. And then he continued and he said, warning that unless those human rights are considered God-given, they will be subject to erosion or revocation. This is rather fascinating. So, according to the papacy, human rights must be considered as God-given. Now, I have a problem. What if some of the human rights are the exact opposite of the law of God? Is God divided in himself? Or is this a new lawgiver? And if it is a new lawgiver, then what God are we speaking about? Because if it's not the God of the Bible, it must be another God. And which God are we talking about? Surely it's a reference to that deity that sits in the temple of God, assuming to be God, and takes the prerogative upon himself to change God's law. Now he gave us some more details in that speech. He says they are based on natural law, inscribed on human hearts and present in different cultures and civilizations. So they're not based on the Bible. They're based on natural law. And they are the key to world peace and security. So obviously human rights are the key issue for human relationships in the world today. Now if we go to a very general um, encyclopedia, the Web 1, Wikipedia, just for this general definition, it's based on Greek philosophy. So it's not a biblical philosophy, it's a Greek philosophy. And it's the custom or the convention uh, of a particular environment, a nation. What the law commands varied from place to place, but what was by nature should be the same everywhere. So it becomes a universal law based on natural law. Now let's look at some of the theological thinkers. Here was a, a Jewish uh, person who taught at a Catholic university. He has died since then. Amongst Catholic intellectuals, as well as some who are not Catholic, the most important Catholic inheritance is the natural law tradition which is premised on the idea that there are certain truths in the world that remain true irrespective of whether the laws and conventions of any particular society adhere to them. So they are based on man's reason, art, beauty, morality, universality. They're based on human reason. They're not based on scripture. Now, this book, Reason Informed by Faith, is written by Richard M. Gula, who belongs to the Society of Jesus, Jesuit. And he claims that natural law is central to Roman Catholic theology. The advantage of using natural law is that the church shows great respect for human goodness and trusts the human capacity to know and choose what is right. Hmm, interesting. So Roman Catholic natural law is derived from the premise that reason is unfallen. 
You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Whereas Protestant law of nature embodies reason subdued by the word. Isaiah tells us in chapter 1 verse 5, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more, and the whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. Jeremiah says the same things. He says we are desperately wicked, the heart is deceitful. And Romans echoes the sentiment, and Paul says, In me there's nothing that's good, nothing at all. So nothing dwelleth in me that is good. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So the Bible says we are fallen individuals and our reason is also fallen. Martin Luther was pretty clear on the issue. He says human reason is blind, deaf, senseless, godless and sacrilegious in all its dealings with all God's words and works. So I cannot base my morality on human reason, so says Martin Luther, I have to base my morality on the scripture. But the papacy says no. He'll base it on natural law and he'll base it on his reason. So that which is the same somewhere will be natural for the region. Now John 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So in other words, morality must be linked to a higher power according to the scripture. And that power is Christ. So if reason is unfallen, then we should be able to save ourselves by our reason. Moreover, natural law also requires the sacrifice of individualism to collectivism. Because if natural law is the norm in a certain environment, then you have to accept that norm because it is natural. If you go against it, you are rebelling against the natural order. So let's see how the Jesuits will phrase that. The Jesuit Murray writes, Natural law regards the community as given equal with the person. You see, you cannot rise above your community. Man is regarded as a member of an order given by God and subject to the order that makes the order an order. That is typical Jesuit writing style. It makes no sense whatsoever. But nevertheless, it conveys the idea under many words that uh, man may not rise above the norm of society, because then you will be a problem in the world. So who's going to be then the standard of morality, and who's going to decide what is natural and what is not natural? Well, let's ask the Roman Catholic Church. Here's the address of His Holiness, Benedict XVI, when he spoke to the Congregation of Doctrine and Faith. That is the body that determines law and stature in the Roman Catholic Church. He says, In forming their consciences, the faithful must pay careful attention to the sacred and searching teachings of the Church. Not the Bible, the Church. For the Catholic Church is by the will of Christ the teacher of truth. It is her duty to proclaim and teach with authority the truth which is Christ, and at the same time, now listen carefully, to declare and confirm by her authority 
the principles of the moral order which spring from human nature itself. So the principles of the moral order are not dictated by God and the Bible, they're dictated by the church on the basis of natural law. The church decides what is natural law and what is not. So what position does the Pope have in all of this? Well, here's his address to the University of Rome, and he's speaking to the students, and he says the Pope is, first of all, the Bishop of Rome, and as such, in virtue of his apostolic succession from the Apostle Peter, he has episcopal authority in regard to the entire Catholic Church, because the word bishop, episcopos, which in its immediate meaning refers to supervision, already in the New Testament was fused to the word shepherd, and therefore he is the one who from an elevated point of observation will decide what is right and wrong. Thus he says, thus the Pope, precisely as the shepherd of his community, has increasingly become a voice of ethical reasoning of humanity. Now this whole idea of a bishop having authority over everyone is foreign to the scriptures, totally foreign to the scripture. It was introduced by the church fathers because the council of the early church, according to the scriptures, consisted of the apostles, the elders, and the brethren together making decisions for the brethren. Whereas in the Roman situation, the ecclesia is separated from the laity. But that is not to be found in scripture. So morality, according to this, will be dictated by the church, of which the pope is the shepherd and has an elevated position of observation. Luther said, no. Schriftprinzip, Bible-based. Schrift is scripture, scripture-based principle. The Roman church state says, Führerprinzip, leadership principle. One man decides what is right and what is wrong. Now Luther wrote, we should learn to separate spiritual and temporal power from each other as far as heaven and earth, for the Pope has greatly obscured this matter and has mixed the two powers. So clearly there is a divide on this issue. All right, now what is being taught in the world today? The Bible and the Ten Commandments or human rights? What is being touted on the news? Human rights. Now, Condoleezza Rice, already under the Bush era, made a fascinating speech where she said Jacobinism, that was reference to the French Revolution, and Americanism. So they have the same ideal. I wonder why the Statue of Liberty, which is, by the way, a statue of the god Mitra, was given by the French to the United States. Was it to continue the philosophy that was propagated there in the first place? So she made this interesting speech where she extolled the Bush's administration global democratic revolution, which she says continues the work of the 18th century French revolution. So in other words, the United States must become the power that takes the philosophy that came out of the French revolution and makes it universal. Everybody must be forced into this situation. Now, what will be the power that is used to do this? Of course, the military power. 
Here's the Department of the Army, United States of America. And if you remember that first little human rights thing that came out, what is this funny little hat doing on the central spear? It's the same hat of Mitraism. So the same uh, ideology is portrayed there. And there was a serpent above that in the French Revolution. And so there's a serpent above this. And it says, this well defend. This well defend. So what must be well defended? The philosophy of the French Revolution, which places human rights above God's morality. Now let's go to papal encyclicals, and this one is Guardium at Spes. And Robbins writes, what the papacy has realized is that by constantly enlarging the rights of man, to use the Vatican's own phrase, it can offer ev ever new moral arguments for enlarging the size, scope, and power of government. Hmm. That's what the Vatican II issue was all about. So then follows a long list of human rights which come out of the pen of the Vatican and not out of the pen of secular governments. And these must be implemented. So if you look at the list that come out of the papal pen, it see, you see you have a right to freely found unions for working people. You have a right to culture, to immigrate, to immigrate, to food, to clothing, to rest, to medical care, to a just wage, to life, to a safe environment, personal security of the workers, family life, private property. Common use of all goods is added thereafter, the work, pension, old age, right of association, security, integrity, right to found a family, to strike, etc., education, employment, reputation, appropriate information, etc., privacy, freedom, all sounds very good. But what if hidden in this list there is a sting which one does not see? with the naked eye. The complex circumstances of our day, said the Second Vatican Council document, Gaudium et Spes, papal encyclical, make it necessary for public authority to intervene more, intervene more and more often in social, economic and cultural matters. And already in 1874, Britain's Prime Minister Gladstone stated, individual servitude, however abject, will not satisfy the Latin Church the state must also be a slave. Everybody must be subject to the system. So let's have a look how human rights relates to God's commandments. Because this is the hub. Because the Roman church said, human rights are God-given. So there must be a God who gave them. Now if it's not the God of the Bible, then it's another God. So let's see if they harmonize. If they harmonize, then well then fine. If not, there's a problem. Remember the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. I've brought you out of Egypt. The one who brought you out of Egypt. And you may have no other gods beside me. Now, what do you do if you want to have a universal law and you want to embrace Hinduism and Zoroastrism and Buddhism and all of these religions who do not acknowledge the one God who brought them up out of Egypt? Well, then you take that portion out 
and you make it the generic God. That's what they did. The humanist says, the article in the humanist said, I'm convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytes of the new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of the theologians called divinity in each human being. So this elevates man to the level of deity. That's what they want to do. But my question is this. What has happened in our schooling systems? The one God that is referred to in the Bible, is he exclusively worshipped, or does the school system of the world now embrace all religions? What has happened? It has embraced all religions. And to say that one religion is superior to another, or one deity is superior to another, is regarded as hate speech. So the new human rights way of interpreting the worship of God is to say, thou shalt consider all deities equal. That's a negation of the first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods before me. So there's a new commandment which totally contradicts God's commandment. Here is a, a legal document which says, Professor Ian Lee of Durham University, a leading human rights lawyer, said today, the government regulations have the potential to seriously undermine freedom of association for religious people. They place the modern concept of equality over and above religious liberty. You may not, you may not say, this is my form of worship and my deity is different to yours. It's against human rights. And what about the second commandment? Thou shalt not make for yourself an image. Remember, you shall not bow down to it. This is the commandment that Rome removed. So it's gone. Now, what does Rome say on the issue? Well, let's go to one of their catechisms. Article 1161 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Nicene one, says... Following the divinely inspired teaching of our Holy Fathers and the tradition of the Catholic Church, please note, there's nothing here about the Bible, we rightly define with full certainty and correctness that like the figure of the precious and life-giving figure of the cross, venerable and holy images of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our inviolate Lady, the Holy Mother of God, and the venerated angels, all the saints and the just, whether painted, of mosaic, another suitable material, are to be exhibited in the holy churches on sacred vessels and vestments, walls and panels, on houses and on streets. This is directly the opposite of what the commandment of God says. So this is a new lawgiver. He's changed God's law. In fact, he's contradicted God's law. Now, if you attach this statement to the modern laws of hate speech, where you are not allowed to criticize what others do. If you say that idolatry is something that is evil, then you are contradicting the human rights of that individual, and therefore the second commandment has not only been removed by Rome, it has been totally obliterated by human rights. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This is the blasphemy law. And in John, 
And in Mark, we read what blasphemy is. For a good work we stone thee not, they said to Jesus, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And uh, who can forgive God, uh, give sins but God only? So the other one was, Jesus said to this individual, your sins are forgiven. But he was deity because he proved that he was deity because he made the blind see even if they were born blind. Nobody could do that. And uh, so these are the laws of blasphemy. Now if we look at the papacy, the Pope is so great dignity and so exalted that he's not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. Or he says God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. So here is a power that says it's another deity on earth and it says it can forgive sins, both of which are termed blasphemy. And the Vatican has already opined that if you criticize the Vatican, that is akin to terrorism. Fascinating. So those laws can be changed as you please. It's forbidden to pray in the name of Jesus. This is when these laws came into effect. Suddenly, the United States military, under President George Bush, who was apparently a very conservative Christian, suddenly issued laws that you're no longer allowed to pray in the name of Jesus because this would be offensive to other people. And prayer in the public schools became a great issue. And it was in 1962 that the first ban came into effect and the second was issued in 1963, and so now nobody may pray and honor the name of God in the, of the scriptures. It's illegal in public venues. So your human right not to be confronted with another religion in this fashion has negated the law of God. What about the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, Let's ask the Catholic Church, which is the Sabbath day. Saturday is the Sabbath day. Okay. Then why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer. We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. That's their converts' catechism, explaining why it's done. They claim it's the mark of their authority. The Church is above the Bible. And therefore this transference of the Sabbath is proof of the fact that they are above the Bible. That's pretty arrogant. Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act and it is a mark of her ecclesiastical power. So said Cardinal Gibbons. And they are pretty blatant about it. They say if Protestants would follow the Bible, they should worship God on the Sabbath day. By keeping the Sunday, they are keeping a law of the Catholic Church. And if Protestants, by discarding the authority of Rome, claim, why, we're not under Rome, then why are you obeying your Sunday theory? You should logically be keeping Saturday. And they get arrogant as well. Not the creator of the universe in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but the Catholic Church can claim the honor of having granted man a pause to his work every seventh day. And reason and common sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives. Either you're a Protestant and you keep Saturday, or you're a Catholic and you keep Sunday. Compromise is impossible. So you're either with the Scripture or you are with them. This is actually quite an affront 
to the Protestant world. Why are you keeping Sunday? You're acknowledging our authority. Does the church push the issue? Of course it does. John Paul said a person who violates the sanctity of Sunday is to be punished as a heretic. That's rather strange. That's the first time since the Middle Ages that a modern pope had used the word heretic and uh, said he should be punished. And he also said that Sunday no one should work. So they certainly pushed the Sunday issue, which is not a command of God, according to their own writings. And Pope Benedict tells the same story. He says, we can't live without it. We need Sunday. And the present Pope goes further. Catholic Online, never on Sunday, Pope Francis says. Working on Sunday has a negative effect on the family. He says, the full commercialization of Sunday from business being open to people working on what is biblical to be a day of rest as Pope Francis in lamentation, the abandoning of the traditional Christian practice of not working on Sunday has a negative impact on families and friendship, he says, back to Sunday. So all the modern popes, including the present one, are touting the issue, although it's not scriptural. Rome even issued a challenge where they said quite blatantly that when you worship on Sunday, you are worshipping a command of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, if you say that it's biblical, well then you are contradicting what Rome has said. You are denying her authority. It's a denial of Catholic authority and it's dishonest because the Bible doesn't teach it. So Rome knows that the Bible doesn't teach that the Sabbath was changed. And they claim if Protestantism wants to base its teaching only on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. Now how does this fit in with a modern theology that the law has been done away with? Theologians claim we are under grace, we are not under law. That's a misnomer. That's an oxymoron. How can you be under grace if there is no law? The Bible says where there is no law, there's no transgression. So if there's no transgression, then you don't need grace. So if you are receiving grace... It means you have acknowledged that you are an aggressor and have apologized and now you receive grace. But if you are a transgressor, then there must be a law because without law there's no transgression, so the law must stand. Grace doesn't negate law, grace upholds law. Romans 3, 19 and 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I cannot be saved by the law. The law just tells me what's right and wrong. It's an inanimate script that tells me what's right and wrong. And it tells me I'm a sinner and I'm in need of grace. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. This is biblical theology. Modern theology greatly confuses this issue. They say the law is part of the Old Testament, but if you look up the law in the New Testament, you will find all the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And here are all the texts. We don't have to go through them. You can freeze the slide and you can look them up. Every commandment is in the New Testament, so the law hasn't been abrogated. What did the Reformers teach? Charles Spurgeon taught Jesus did not come to change the law. He came to explain it. And he quotes Matthew 5. I have not come to abolish the law. 
And that very fact shows that it remains, for there is no need to explain that which is abrogated. So Spurgeon said the law stands. Wesley puts it beautifully. He says, I cannot spare the law one moment. No more than I can spare Christ. Each is continually sending me to the other, the law to Christ and Christ to the law. The height and the depth of the law constrain me to fly to the love of God in Christ and the love of God in Christ endears the law to me above gold or precious stones. That's very well put. The woman that was caught in adultery. Adultery, breaking the law, breaking the seventh commandment. They brought her to Christ. Christ wrote in the sand and they read there probably their sins and skedaddled. And then the Lord said to her, where are your accusers? She says, they have gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. That's grace. Then he says, go and sin no more. Sin is transgression of the law. Do not break the law anymore. So she was brought because of her transgression to Christ. Christ forgave her and sent her back to the law. Just as Wesley stated the issue here. This is Reformed theology, and modern theology is not biblical on this issue. If you look up the character of God in the Bible, then God is just, true, pure, light, faithful, good, spiritual, holy, truth, life, righteousness, perfect, and forever. This is God's character. And all the Bible texts are there, taken from the Old and the New Testament. If you look up the character of the law, it says exactly the same thing. It's just true, pure light. So the law is light, faithful, good, spiritual, holy, truth, life, righteousness, perfect and forever. So if you separate the law from Christ, you are separating the very nature of God from him. So they are linked together. The law is a transcript of the character of God. Now what about the fifth commandment? So obviously... According to the Bible, the law stands, but Rome has changed every single one of them. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long. Human rights, parental rights. Why now is it time to act? We should start with the question, why did the founders, speaking about America, neglect to include parental rights in the text of the Constitution? Why? Because nobody thought that the state would ever turn against parents. So what is happening? The United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Interesting. The American Bar Association, which supports the treaty that every nation must sign, has already opined that teaching children that Jesus is the only way to God violates the spirit and the meaning of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Interesting. You see, in human rights, parental rights are lower than child rights. Child rights are number one. Parental rights come thereafter. Not in the Bible. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. So parental rights stand above child rights. So the moral decisions that a parent makes, he has the right in his household to make the children subject to his moral decisions, but not according to human rights. 
So this is a reversal. And Satan is the master of reversal. He reverses everything. You're saved by grace, he'll say you're saved by works. He'll reverse it. Everything is a reversal. And here, this commandment has been reversed by human rights. So the rights of the child stand above parental rights, a reversal of God's commandment. What about the commandment, thou shalt not kill? Do human rights negate this commandment? Surely not. Family crisis at the United Nations. The Family Research Council has published a document in which they say there's a serious problem. Because what about at, uh, abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, and other things like this? Your human rights give you the right to destroy an unborn child. It is your human right to do so. Now Matthew 1 verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. If you rephrase that, then you would have to, in modern terms, say, the virgin was with fetus. And according to modern thinking, a fetus does not have the same stature as a human being and therefore can be removed. But it was not so in biblical times. So let's just continue a little bit more with this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, SIECUS is the Sexuality, Trans Information and Education Council of the United States. And they claim, while it is generally desirable for parents to be involved in their children's contraceptive decisions, the right of each person to confidentiality and privacy in receiving contraceptive information, counseling and services is paramount. Now you see, when you look at this commandment, the seventh commandment, and you study it in the book of Exodus, it's explained in greater detail there. It's not just breaking the relationship of a marriage. It has all the moral issues relating to sexuality, with what you may and with what you may not have a relationship. And all the issues are mentioned there in the book of Exodus. For example, bestiality, uh, gender, sex, all of these issues are mentioned there. And they form part of the seventh commandment. So now, this think tank for human rights has opined that parents have no right to interfere in their children's sexual preferences or their need for contraceptives. That is why schools hand out contraceptives without the parents' knowledge or possibility of intervention. And gay marriages around the world have become the norm. Netherlands became the first country to do this some 12 years ago. Now one country after the other has uh, jumped onto the bandwagon. One of the first was also South Africa and the United Kingdom and Uruguay and now the United States and Mexico and all of these countries, all of them must jump onto the bandwagon. The White House, all nicely lit up in rainbow colors to separate the new chapter in same-sex rights, June 26, 2015, and Obama said, And this ruling is a victory for America. This decision affirms what millions of Americans already believe in their hearts. When all Americans are treated as equal, we are all more free. Free from what? Free from what is a question I would like to ask. 
Because in the scripture, there's a very specific law. Now, I'm not here to argue for or against the issue. I'm just making a comparison here between human rights and God's law. That's the issue here at stake. In God's law, there are very, very specific rules as to what constitutes sexual morality. And in human rights and the rulings that we see in the world, those rules are counteracted by humanistic rules. So when he see, says we are free, then it must be free from the constraints of the law as it is in the scripture. That's what it means. So human rights is a negation of the biblical moral law. Now, if we think about this, if it's based on natural law, then the society will decide, based on reason, what is natural. So if you live in a society, let's say somewhere, where the entire society is lesbian or gay or whatever, then that is the norm and the standard, and reason tells you that that is the standard that you must accept and you may not rebel against it or criticize it because you are criticizing human rights. That's the thinking. So that which is in the scriptures regarded as problematic becomes the norm under natural law. And this is the problem. That is why it is not unusual to see that the cardinals, and this is Cardinal Dolan, who on his, one of his very first official acts as the new Cardinal of New York, head of the Knights of Malta in the United States, led a gay pride rally and was very proud of this issue. So this is human rights. This is the way it's going to be. And it's a total negation of the word of God. And if you go to the legislation, some of it is very fascinating. Already in 2005, some laws were discussed where Christians could be fined uh, exorbitant amounts of money if they criticized these uh, developments and could receive up to 47 years in prison. Incredible. And if you look at the Canadian laws, uh, they're even more interesting because if you quote a Bible verse which condemns this attitude or this lifestyle, then you could be subject to five years imprisonment. Now, I'm not criticizing the lifestyle. I'm just mentioning that this is the law. So human rights have taken precedence over God's law. Now, Siechus also said, it is the position of Siechus that the use of explicit sexual material, pornography, can serve a variety of important needs in the lives of countless individuals. Abortion, every woman, regardless of age or income, should have the right to obtain an abortion, and at a reasonable cost. Pornography, Adults should have the right to access sexually explicit material for personal use. And legislative and judicial efforts to prevent the production or distribution of sexually explicit material endanger constitutionally guaranteed freedoms of speech and press. Fascinating. So in other words, 
all of these issues, which in the Bible are condemned under human rights, are turned into law. So you cannot avoid it in this world that we are living in. And uh, in my own country, in South Africa, there was a you and cry because all television broadcasting takes place under the license of the South African broadcasting industry. And there was an application by a group called Top TV that wanted to broadcast 24-hour pornography on television so that you could just tune into it if you were uh, subscribed to that broadcast. And uh, the Christian community complained and said that this is highly unreasonable and it will lead to a moral decline in the nation and it should be stopped. And it's interesting that the Independent Communications Authority has no choice but to allow Top TV, three porn channels, it was reported today. No choice. Why don't they have a choice? Because they've signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and it is your human right to see pornography. So all I'm showing in this lecture is that human rights absolutely in totality, no, negate God's moral standard in the scripture. The two are diametrically opposed to each other. They are as far removed from each other as the East is from the West. So when the Pope says that they must be considered God-given, then absolutely it cannot be the God of the Bible. It must be another deity. And if the Catholic cardinals already lead gay pride rallies and tout the moral value of this human right, then obviously the God that we're referring to sits in the very hub of morality for this day, which is Rome itself. Now let's have a look at the 8th and the ninth and the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not covet. And there was the house, the wife, the workers, the implements, and the transport. You weren't allowed to covet them. Fascinating. So according to the scripture, if you're not allowed to covet them because they belong to your neighbor, then God's law allows for ownership of houses and property, etc., and control over the workers in your industry. Of course, God's law also had admonitions as to how one should treat workers. You were to be kind to them. You were to be generous to them. You were not to exploit them. Now, that's one issue. But to say, we will decide who and where and what is another issue. Now, the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness. Isaiah says, none calls for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And Jeremiah says the same thing. He says, they speak not the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. And he also says, I have not sent them, says the Lord. So if you say, 
to lie is justified under certain circumstances in order to further a particular cause, as the Jesuits have already said, then uh, the ends justify the means, then that is a very strange morality. Why is evolution theory compulsory in the schools and creation not? Creation is banned and evolution is compulsory. Most religious leaders continue to regard creationism as superstition. So, if according to the scripture there was a creation, and according to science there was not a creation, then there's no choice if everybody is forced to only consider the scientific view. And therefore it is a negation of that which the Bible calls truth. So, lying by legislation. The Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, is very closely related to Thou shalt not covet. And so let's have a look at how Rome interprets this. This is the famous encyclical of Pope Leo, which is quoted by every single modern pope, including Pope Francis, Rerum Novarum, and it says, For every man has by nature, natural law, the right to possess property as his own. So this was already issued by Pope Leo, so this is long ago. It is lawful, says St. Thomas Aquinas, this is Article 22 in this papal encyclical, for a man to hold private property and is also necessary for the carrying on of human existence. But if the question be asked, how must one's possession be used, the Church replies without hesitation in the words of the same holy doctor, Man should not consider his material possessions as his own, but as common to all, so as to share them without hesitation when others are in need. According to canon law, the control of all property of the Roman church state belongs to the Pope, its supreme emperor. The Roman Catholic doctrine is the same basically as the communist slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. This is social justice, of which the Jesuits are the champions and Pope Francis the spokesperson today. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Because the goods of some are due to others by natural law, there is no sin if the poor take the goods of their neighbor. Hmm. So you can take another person's property, for need has made it common. But the Bible says, you shall not covet and you shall not steal. Interesting. Not only is such taking of another's property not sin, it is not even a crime, according to Thomas. He says it is lawful for man to succor his own need by means of another's property by taking it either openly or secretly. Nor is this theft or robbery. It's not theft because the need has made it his. Now, it's interesting that they say you can even succor someone else's need. So if you break into a house and you see a television set in one room, you think, I have need of this, I can take it. And you see another television, you think, well, you know, my friend Joe also has need of one, you can take that too. In the old days, if you caught a thief in your house and you shot him, you were a hero in the newspapers. Today, if you, if you do that, you end up in jail. And I've personally spoken to people who have been dragged before the courts because they were robbed, armed robbery, beaten up and shot 
and they managed to defend themselves and kill someone, they ended up in court under charges of murder. Canon Law 1254 says the Catholic Church has an innate right to acquire, retain, administer and alienate temporal goods in pursuit of its proper ends. The Church has an innate right to require from the Christian faithful whatever is necessary for the ends of the proper use of it. So the only one who can decide what belongs to you is the Church, according to canon law. Pope John Paul II said the same thing. He says it's necessary once again to state the characteristic principle of Christian social doctrine. The goods of the world are originally meant for all. Right of private property is valid and necessary, but it does not nullify the value of the principle. Private property is under social mortgage. It doesn't belong to you. So if someone wants to move onto your land, you have no right to throw them off unless the state supports you in the issue. But if they don't want to, you're stuck. You cannot evict someone because you don't own anything. And John Paul II said all goods includes not just goods found in nature, but manufactured goods as well. So I have need of your car. Get out. I'll hijack it. Guardium et Spes, another paper encyclical. If one is in extreme necessity, he has the right to procure for himself what he needs out of the riches of other. This is fascinating stuff. This comes out of the Second Vatican Council. So this negates the law. And if you look at the issues that have been removed, your house, you have private property but it doesn't belong to you. You may pay the taxes, you may take care of it, but if somebody has need of it, they'll take it. Finished. Your car. Nobody drives a car without the car being licensed. And who is the one who controls whether you drive it or not? Is it the one who has the license or the licensee, the one who gives the license? So all your vehicles are under license. They don't belong to you. They are loaned to you by state approval. Your workers that work for you. In my country, it's very prominent where we have, of course, uh, affirmative action, which means that uh, the state will decide who and what race you will employ. So if you want to employ people that you know or that are friends of yours, the state will close down your business because they haven't got the right skin color or, or whatever. So you don't have the right to say who will work for you. The state will determine it and the trade unions will determine who you will employ. And even churches today have not the right to employ only people from their denomination that's discriminating or in terms of their sexual orientation. The state will decide whom you will employ. So that is rather fascinating. So you own nothing according to the system. Now, how does it happen that this system becomes a universal system governed by the church? Surely governments are independent of the church, or are they? So let us have a brief look behind the scenes. Here is a picture of Pope Francis and uh, the then time head of the Grand Order of the Knights of Malta. 
And this was Prince Andrew Willoughby Ninian Bertie. He always has to be a royal, the head of the Knights of Malta. It's a military order, and he's subject to the papacy, and the idea is to further the aims of the papacy. So if you belong to this order, then this is what you do. The new Grand Master currently is uh, Eminent Highness Matthew Festing. There he is, also subject to the papacy. So the Knights of Malta are a military order, but the Catholic Church doesn't have a military, does it? Well, this is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. The hospitalers of St. John of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights of Malta, the most important of all the military orders, both for the extent of its area and for its duration. It is said to have existed before the Crusades and is not extinct at the present time. And this is the attire that they wore, and they had the Maltese cross on their shoulder. Now, a very modern Knight of Malta would be the Queen of England, who has the Knight of Malta sign on her shoulder. Now, she will claim that she's a Protestant Knight of Malta. Now, that is ridiculous because there's no such thing as a Protestant arm. Yes, they are Protestants, but by definition, the Knights of Malta are a Roman Catholic military order, and the promise is to further the aims and the ideology of Rome and nothing else. So when a political leader or a leader in any capacity is a Knight of Malta, his first obligation will be to further the morality and the political situation and of the Roman Catholic Church state. Now here is Prince Charles, and you can see he also wears the Maltese cross around his neck. So the royalty is very much engaged. Here's Prince Albert. He has just recently been made a Knight of Malta. There's his chain that he has around him. And uh, of course, he married a South African girl who was a Protestant and had to change her religion. And the kings, like the former king, Juan Carlos, his son is now ruling, also Knights of Malta, all of them subject to the Pope, kneeling down, kissing the ring. And the Jesuits, very similarly, are involved in this situation and together with the Knights of Malta, form the military arm of the Roman Catholic Church. So let's have a look at a few interesting world leaders. As I come from Southern Africa, I find this rather fascinating. There is one of the presidents of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, before him it was Nelson Mandela. And here he is with Robert Mugabe. Now, Robert Mugabe has introduced the weirdest legislation that anyone can imagine in southern Africa, driving people off their lands because the land is common, whoever he wants to drive off, making the strangest laws, forbidding people to grow their own food, etc. And the world, of course, reacts by referring to him as the pariah, but uh, they don't put their money where their mouth is because there's an international travel ban uh, associated with the gentleman, but when the Pope is inaugurated, he travels to Europe, no problem, although he's not supposed to. So what are the issues behind these issues? Well, you see that the two prime ministers, the one of 
Zimbabwe and the other one of South Africa are good friends. There they are, holding hands. And some other strange people, like the former uh, president of Iran, are also very friendly. This is all one big interesting clan. Now, it's fascinating that a man who is well over 90 years old should have just been appointed as the new African Union chairman. Now, if he's such a uh, disliked individual in world politics and world affairs, then why should he be honored with such important positions? Well, the foreign affairs... Council on Foreign Relations report said Mugabe was trained by Jesuits. So is he a Jesuit? It's fascinating to me that at the inauguration of Pope Francis, every political leader bowed down to the Pope. But when Mugabe approached him, the Pope bowed down to Mugabe. Now, the only logical reason for that, and there was much speculation on the web as to why this should be, or as to why he should give a Masonic handshake to the wife of Mugabe, well, they're both Jesuits, and this one is an older Jesuit than this one, so maybe it's a sign of respect. What's interesting politically is that uh, the wife of President Mugabe has subsequently been elevated to the leadership position and is being groomed as the possible next president of the nation. So, interesting associations. If we take the first president, then it was Nelson Mandela. And what was he? He was a knight of Malta. Here he is receiving the host from the Catholic Archbishop. And uh, the interesting point is, if he is a knight of Malta, then the politics that will be associated with him will be the politics of Rome. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're following exactly the same pattern as has been established in the other countries. Property is being alienated. People are taken off their lands. Common land is declared. All farmland will be declared common. There will be no property ownership. And this is going to be universal because this is a universal law. So if the first world countries want to be complacent, I have news for them. Tabombeki was the next president after him. He's also a knight of Malta. All of them. And if we take the next president, the current ruling one, well, he was made an honorary knight grand cross of the Order of the Bath by the Queen. And the newspapers touted him as having received this great honor. Now, this is a military order, and uh, it's fascinating that he was the head of the military arm of the ruling party, which is called Nkontwe with Caesar. So he receives a military honor. It's interesting that uh, President Ronald Reagan received the same honor from the Queen, and these were all Knights of Malta. So as head of the armed forces of the United States, he would receive this rather than the other honors. So the Knights of Malta are in government, either Jesuits or Knights of Malta. Let's go a little bit deeper. The CIA, it was formed by William Wild Bill Donovan, and he was a Knight of Malta. So his first allegiance would be not to the state, but to Rome. 
And then the FBI, again, the powerful Knight of Malta, the Catholic University of America, Charles Joseph Bonaparte, trustee of the Catholic University of America, again, a Knight of Malta. So his politics and the issues involved will be the very ones that enforce the morality of the Pope. Let's take a look at some of the more modern ones. Al Jazeera tells us that John Brennan, who is the director of the CIA, is Jesuit-trained intelligence and analyst. So the morality is infiltrated in all of humanity, the leaders of the countries, the leaders of the intelligence organizations, all of them are associated with this power. Leon Panetta was the former director, then he became Secretary of Defense. He was educated at Santa Clara University, and uh, again, that is Jesuit. Opus Dei, the true Christian must be disciplined and obedient to a spiritual director. And this is Jesuit theology. Ignatius Loyola said that you must have absolute obedience like a corpse to your superior. But the Bible says you must test the spirits. You must decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong under the guidance of God and by his word. So here you have the issue of force attached to morality. You will be forced to accept a morality which is not Bible-based. And that's fascism. That's what happened under fascism. There's an interesting book, Their Kingdom Come, which talks about Opus Dei. And it's interesting that some of the candidates that are running for the presidential election in the United States of America are actually Opus Dei members, just for interest's sake. And they say that this is a financial institute, secret rights, banking, and uh, money distribution according to the needs as they have them. And you can look at any organization that is in government, like the Trilateral Commission, with their symbol which can be translated into 666. There you have the Pope together with the Trilateralists, with heads of state like Mario Monti, etc., associated with them, or the Jesuits behind the Pope. This is the power behind the system. And if you want to go to the, the great rulers of the world, the mega powers of Europe and the United States of America, well, the former president, according to America magazine, which is the Jesuit official magazine in the United States, he was educated by Jesuits in Brussels. And they even put their drum rolls, civil play. So be happy he was Jesuit educated. The present one is Donald Tusk from Poland. What is he doing there? He was a member of Solidarity, and Solidarity was a child of the papacy. So they're all in this together. And if you take the candidates of the American elections, well, if you look at Mitt Romney, according to US News, he was at a Bilderberg meeting. But at the same meeting was his opponent, Obama and Hillary Clinton, who's running for president currently. So all of these are in the same think tank. Now, who created these think tanks like Bilderberg? And why are the great industrialists and the money magnets of the world in Bilderberg? 
He was the International Monetary Fund head in the Bilderberg. Now, according to their own webpage, the Bilderbergers were formed and they received their name because of the hotel where they met for the first time. And this is the official biography of Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who was the first figurehead. But he says quite clearly in his authorized biography, it was not Bernard's original idea, but had its inception in the brilliant brain of Dr. Joseph H. Rettinger. And he was an extraordinary character who flitted through Europe, talking on intimate terms with prime ministers, labor leaders, industrial magnates, revolutionaries, intellectuals, etc., etc. And then they claim his Jesuitical convictions were the ones that formed the basis of this think tank. Though his name is virtually unknown except to the initiates. He made more history in his secret way than many a man who moved to the sound of trumpets and the howl of motorcycle sirens. So here is the evidence that behind the powers in the world today, the morality that is being legislated all over the world is the morality of Rome. And as we have seen, they've changed the law of God, and therefore it is another deity than the one that is described in the Bible. According to the official publication of the European Center of Culture, Rettinger was the key figure in most of the great European Union, the League of European Economic Corporations, etc., etc. The Congress of Europe at Hague was his doing. So bringing about the modern political arena is a Jesuit activity, a night of Malta activity. Here is the man, here is seen with the former um, head of Poland, and it's fascinating that the new president of the, of the European Union is Polish, when the European Union and Poland are not even fully united yet. So whether you are a Jesuit, you'll be subject to the papacy, so whether you are uh, in southern Africa and considered a pariah of the world, Yet you will become the head of the African Union to use your influence to see that matters work according to the needs. Or whether you are Matthew Festing of the Knights of Malta, or whether you are a president of the United States, you will have to appear before this power. Pope calls for a new world order. He proposed a new world political authority with real teeth, and Obama echoes it, calls for a new international order. Pope Benedict calls for globalism on the same day that President Obama called for an international order. And Time magazine touted Pope Francis as the new world pope. It's fascinating to me that the man has moral issues that he's coming to the United States of America, that he will address the United Nations. What are the issues? Morality. Which morality? Catholic morality. Based on what? Natural law. Not based on scripture. And Christians don't see it. Isaiah 4 verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou hast, 
Thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I also will forget thy children. And Deuteronomy says, I call heaven and earth to record this day regarding the Tenth Commandment against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. This is the issue facing humanity. Who has authority over my moral choices? Is it the God of heaven and the scriptures? Or is it natural law under another deity that has the goal to change God's law and introduce an entire new set of morality which totally negates God's word. That is a choice every single one of us will be faced with. Either I'm loyal to God or I'm loyal to the system. That choice is mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tremendous issue. If we want to be loyal to the God of heaven and have no other gods beside him, we will confront the wrath of the state. If we make the other choice, then we will have to deal with the wrath of God, poured out without mixture. Surely there's a choice to be made here, and I pray that you will help each and every one of us to make the right choice. In Jesus' name, amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.